0: Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I just finished recording what feels like one of the most powerful podcasts that I've ever recorded. It's with Michael Brody Waite, he is in Recovering Drug Addict. He's written a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. Oh, and it is an incredible conversation that I truly believe every single person who listens to this podcast is going to benefit from, and everyone you know could benefit from it too. I was just getting waves and waves of goosebumps while I listened to his story. (sighs) Everyone has addictions, and he has an incredible framework for how to face it, and what you'll find out by the end of the podcast is it's the rearticulation of the principles that I live by that have most transformed my life. This podcast has the potential to change your life and to change the life of the people that you love. So I hope that you take the time to listen and I hope that you will share it with the people that you love. (sighs) This is a big one. I love you guys. Thank you so much for your attention and your love. Enjoy. Namaste. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, The Magic Hour, highly recommended that you and I connect. And what better way to connect than to do it live on the podcast? And so, thanks for, thanks for having me, man. The question, and what I love about the podcast is it's such a great way for me to get to know you and for people listening to get to know you. And the opening question that I'd love to start with is, if you just did something that puts you into a flow state, first, what would that thing be? But then afterwards, if I were to come up to you and ask you, who are you and what do you do, what would you say?
1: So the, the moment that I think of where I am in peak flow state, if I understand what you're asking, is when I've attended one of my 12-step meetings um, that I've been going to for 17 years And although now this isn't real because it's not physical, but uh, my home group meets uh, in a church. And when we're done, we all come out of the church and we stand on the steps of the church. And that's where the real meetings begin. Mm. And one of the things that would happen is I would be on those steps for years asking the old timers questions based off of things I heard or things I was wrestling with or trying to figure out for my own recovery and as I went from a newcomer to someone that had been around to now, you know, dangerous ground being an old timer, um, <laughs> I'm the one that gets asked questions. And to be able to just be spiritually tuned to my recovery through an hour of being in a 12-step meeting and then to be on the steps of the church that I've been on for 17 years and to have someone come up to me and say, hey, man, um, I'm, a new, I'm newly in recovery and I really want to stay clean, but I'm also an entrepreneur and I want to start a business. And someone told me that you've done both. And to be able to share my experience, strength, and hope just from a place of like love and, and service, that is my favorite moment. Um, in fact, we were talking before the podcast about my website. And one of the things that my marketing team that built the website said is like, how do we reproduce what happens on the steps of the church? Wow. uh After your meeting. And so that's, that's my, that's my flow state.
0: What was the other question? And then I asked you, like, imagine I was one of those young bucks and I was asking you, who are you and what do you do? What would you say?
1: Well, if you were one of those, as you say, young bucks, I like that. Um, If you're one of those young bucks, I would say I'm just another addict like you. I've just been coming around longer um, to the rooms of recovery. But if they ask me, okay, that's great. But like, you know, like, what do you actually go do? Um, I, I would tell them that. I'm a guy that's obsessed with taking my recovery and everything that the millions of addicts have been using for the last 80 years as a system in order to overcome drug, alcohol, and process and behavior addiction. And I'm obsessed with taking those principles and weaponizing them and applying them in the most unique of of arenas, the professional world, specifically business, management, leadership. And I'm all about showing how the principles that addicts use to recover are the principles that allow anyone to become a truly great leader, and that's my entire life. And so I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I hate that we were talking about this earlier. I hate the term coach, but like I guess I coach people. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that that's and 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 my goal is to create a world that is as safe to work in as those meetings are to live in. Wow.
0: I love that, and um, so many things come up. The first thing is. Um, it seems to be one of the things that our culture is most desperately lacking is a true sense of felt community in person. And I've always really resonated with the communal aspect of the 12-step program. And that there's something in me that feels like the real magic, like the framework is beautiful, but the real magic feels like it's That most people for the first time in their life start to taste what it could be like to have a tribe and a community. And the other thing that comes up that is just something that's been heavy on my mind is that it seems to be that the way our culture is created It is in businesses' best interests if they are acting unconsciously and just to maximize profit to create addicts, and that Mm -hmm. our food is created in a way where it tastes so good that it dwarfs what it feels like to eat real food, and so they those businesses do better if they make you an addict. Same with social media. Same with porn. Same with most of these commercials, like the sodas and Like, we haven't been given very many tools to contend with the fact that there are huge organisms called companies that many of them are operating unconsciously that seek to make you addicts. And then getting into Gabor Mate's perspective on addiction, like, everyone has addictions. And it Mm -hmm. seems that there's only a few addictions that we've allowed people to even claim to try to heal. And that the 12-step program in the community is something that all of us could benefit from if we were willing to admit that our social media use or our masturbation or our workaholism or the broken relationships that we're addicted to are addictions. And I love that you're so loud in this space. Thank you.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah. And I agree with, uh, everything you just said. I remember, uh... You know, there's a movie that is like almost 10 years old that's really hot right now called Contagion, and yes. um, I remember uh, someone asking Lawrence Fishburne in the movie, um, you know, what if uh, you know one of the countries chooses to weaponize this virus? And he said, we don't, they don't need to. The birds are doing that for us already. And when I think about all of the different. Um, organisms, as you said, that, uh, play in the space of feeding on, encouraging, serving addiction. There's a part of me that like, I totally agree with everything you're saying, but, but for me, I kind of, I kind of go back even to just the basics of, I think most people can relate to walking around and feeling uncomfortable in their own skin. And I personally had that experience. I didn't know how to deal with life in life's terms. No one handed me the instruction book on how to deal with life. And unlike some of the people I was around when I went, when when I went to college, they seemed to understand how to deal with it on some level. I just couldn't deal with, like, I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. And so I think a lot of us will use things outside of us to numb our feelings and to try to arrest that discomfort. And so up until 80 years ago, if you were an addict, um, there wasn't a large scale solution. Like your, your, your destination was jails, institutions or death. And there were people that found, um, you know, respite in different um, spiritual religious programs. But there wasn't, like, anything that was specifically built to solve that problem. And then a couple of addicts got together, created the 12 steps, and they created a step-by-step system that now, like, anybody can use to achieve recovery. But the thing that I love about this is I'm taking those principles and showing people how to use them to be a better leader. Because a lot of us spend a lot of time at work, and we don't get taught how to lead ourselves at work. We just get taught how to follow And the cool thing is, is that if we can actually use these principles um, that I've distilled down in my book that are inspired by 12-step programs to create a new leadership paradigm, we actually start equipping the world with a system and a tool set to learn how to be comfortable in your own skin. And then we actually start to create um, a natural uh, immunization from the things that are, that we're addicted to because we start to learn how to be more comfortable in our own skin. And so the whole circle kind of completes itself. It's very philosophical and I don't know if it's realistic, but like that's, that's like, that's the trip I'm on right now at least. And so I, I see this as being very relevant to the work that I'm doing for sure.
0: I love it. The thing that I'm finding and like what my intuition is telling me as I do the research for the book that I'm researching for is when humans claim both the biological pieces that, they, that their body evolved to require and they also claim the spiritual pieces that their consciousness evolved to require. That many of the things that we call chronic illness, mental illness, addiction, it solves itself because all of those are symptoms of either the biology or the spirit basically being sick and that when you provide the body or the spirit what it intrinsically needs it takes care of itself but our current model is not to solve because if you solve it you don't have a customer anymore it's Mm -hmm. to manage the symptoms and the way that that tends to be done is through numbing and addiction is one of the it's the word that we give for the behavior of chronically numbing and um I want to kind of get a more rounded sense of um, who you are, and then I want to get into your early life story to kind of see what brought you here. Um, So how would your best friend describe you and what you do?
1: Um, My best friend's name is Toby, and he is a fellow brother in recovery, and we call each other spiritual warriors. Um, And I think that... Man, I think it would be arrogance for me to try to tell you what Toby would say. I think we'd (laughs) have to call him up and ask him. I don't know what he would say. But I think that if we're trying to get to the heart of like what would the people that know me say that I do or or, or that I'm about, um, I'm an addict that was lucky enough to find recovery. Um, I'm from California, so I say dude, and I had long hair and hoop earrings, (laughs) but I also live in Nashville, Tennessee, so I can say y'all, and I lost the long hair. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I, I was fortunate enough and motivated enough at my bottom at the age of 23 to pursue recovery with a level of vigilance that I had never pursued anything other than drugs before. Mm. And in doing so, I found a framework that, and a community that Really allowed me to overcome all of the things that I was struggling with, and and then all the things I didn't know I would have to deal with. And I today I'm a I'm a father. Um, so like you know like let's actually look at the contrast. So when I got clean, um, I've been kicked out of college. I've been kicked out of my house. I've been fired from my job. My car had been repossessed. I was throwing up blood. I was stealing. The only money I had was what I could steal from my friends. Um, and then today I'm a guy that spent eight years uh, as a leader in a Fortune 50 corporation. Um, I founded my own company that became an Inc. 500 company. So I'm an entrepreneur and a co-founder. I'm a three-time CEO. Uh, I gave a TED Talk that has over a million views. I'm an author. Um, And all those things are, you know, I'm very lucky to have those accomplishments and I'm proud of them, but I honestly don't really give a crap about them. And I think that anybody that brags sucks they are testimony to the fact that the principles that I learned in recovery can transform anyone. If they can do that to this drug addict, they can do it for anyone. And the most important thing is that when I married my wife, I didn't expect her to make me happy. Mm -hmm. I was able to be happy in her company. When I bought my house, I had enough experience trying to use materialism to fill the void since drugs were no longer allowed for me. I knew it wouldn't make me happy and yet I'm able to enjoy having shelter, especially at a time like this. And when my daughter was born 18 months ago, I had the courage and the ability to like, everybody warned me that I wouldn't sleep. No one warned me that I would resent her and that I would feel disconnected to her and to my wife and feel like a resentful, reluctant tourist in my own home and i was able to go to one of my 12 step meetings and even though i know i can share anything in there i was scared to share that and then when i shared it i had all these guys come up to me and relate their experience and offer encouragement and say they'd been there and they could relate and so i'm wow. learning how to be a father and when we have a, my son is going to be born next month so we're like we're we're doing all the things but for me i understand how to deal with life in life's terms today and i understand how to be truly an authentic leader and i've learned how to do that through the lens of recovery and i'm really passionate about giving back through that lens um, but another thing that my friends would tell you is that I'm almost impossible to get on the phone cause I freaking hate the telephone. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have, and that's just like one of many character defects that I have. So like I can rattle off these accomplishments or whatever, but, uh, you know, I, I can tell you about the time that I got really bent out of shape that I was worried there was carbon in my water because my wife did a Brita filter without washing it. Um, I can tell you about the time that I was obsessed, uh, responding to a comment on LinkedIn when I was. Taking care of my daughter and missing out on an opportunity to be with her, I'm still a human being looking to achieve this thing called recovery in any realm that is possible to do it. I'm trying to do it as authentically as possible. I don't think the- Toby
0: would have said all that.: <laughs> <laughs> Man, there's so much in there that I absolutely love. Um, what I hear is the overarching pattern is you have made a spiritual commitment to being radically authentic in a way that most humans don't even dare to be with themselves and the one that really resonated was admitting as a human that you have resentment at times for your child because of the demands that it puts and that is something that we all know and it's so taboo to even begin to articulate that i can feel in me having heard you say it that there's a depth of admiration and love and like, I want to help you do something. Just hearing you say a truth that I know all parents feel and 99.99% of them will never admit it. And then if they feel it, they start to like shame or damage or judge themselves Mm -hmm. because they think that it's not human and how, how could I possibly feel that? And I think that that is, for me, my overarching guiding intent is um if i speak my truth whatever happens as a result of that is the best possible thing period and i've only been enacting that in the world for the last like three years but the 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 results of having done that have transformed my life more radically in the direction of beauty and meaning and and that's what I'm hearing as the major pattern that you're sharing. In the way that you share is that you too have that spiritual commitment. Thank you
1: for seeing that and honoring that. Um, it's amazing how when you get to interact with a human being such as yourself, that's this thoughtful and this present. It's just a great example of how much we take for granted that happens in the moment. Like, um, like our friend Mercedes, you know, she uh, I gave her a compliment. And she stopped and she said, I receive your compliment. And I was like, (laughs) oh, dude, I need more of that. (laughs) Because when I get a compliment, I just say, I try to tell the person that I suck and I'm sorry that they're mistaken.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: And, and, And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Let's just like, let's, let's, let's honor that. So, um, and you're right. Like the, the being a father thing, like that's, I've had, I've so many stories, like in my book, in my TED talk and just like my life where um, I essentially had to go through a process where I had to say, most people would not share this, but it's true to me to share this and I'm going to be vulnerable and share it anyway. And I did lose some battles. Uh, but I think the war is definitely there there to be won. And the child thing, I mean, I, I appreciate that you said that because, like, I live in the South, man. People in the South, they're wonderful people, but they definitely want to, like, have rose-colored glasses sometimes. Yeah. And so when I was walking around, they're like, don't you just love it? And I was like, No. And I can't even explain to you how uncomfortable it made them. <laughs> yeah. like, I was uncomfortable, but I like, I broke the rules. Like it was not, it's just like when you say, Hey, how are you doing? And you're like, ready to say the next thing. And someone goes actually terribly and yeah. I'm doing terribly. And you're like, well, wait a second. This was supposed to be a volley. I ask you how you're doing. you say you're exactly. doing fine. I've checked the box and now let's have the real conversation. And now you're getting real about how you, why, how dare you get real? How actually, how yep. dare you actually answer that question? Yeah. And we just have all these like little things that we go through where we're pretending to be the idealistic version of ourselves. It's convenient for us and for everybody else. And then there's those of us that are walking around saying, how do I rip these fucking masks off, show my true self so that I can actually be understood and actually take control of my growth and actually be a better service to others. And I think that there's a big difference between the group of people that um, want to be asleep and the ones that are either curious or, or willing to be awake.
0: Yeah, and I think for most people, they've never even been given a living example of what it looks like to be awake, and they don't even know that it's an option until it's presented to them. And one of the most interesting like, psychological phenomena that I see is people claim not to know a thing, but then if you articulate a thing, they have a response in their body behind the reaction, behind the emotion, where it's this like... Mm-hmm ding. And you can see it in their eyes that a part of them is like, oh my God, that's a a kernel of truth in this fucking web of deception that me and everyone I've ever met have agreed to engage in. And what's really interesting is the research that I've been doing on loneliness is that one in four people report not having a single close friend but loneliness is not correlated with isolation. And I think most people think that it is. Most people have plenty of people around them, but they report not having a single close friend. And it has to do with they don't feel like they're truly seen. And what the research is showing mm-hmm. is that what creates that feeling of being seen is vulnerability. It's admitting the things behind the mask and the research on loneliness is wild because to report being lonely uh, increases your chance of early death more than smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic or being obese or living in a place with dramatic air pollution. Wow. But if you, yeah. But if you have a single friend that you feel seen by, that you feel is a close friend that you can practice vulnerability with, that is, early mortality rate evaporates and it just takes a single close connection and it comes from intimacy. So the first of your three primary rules, um, is a huge solver in people's feeling that they're uncomfortable in their own body because on one level, loneliness makes you sick.
1: Man, isn't that so, that's so true. That's that's uh, man. I want to see that research because that really backs up a lot of stuff that we're doing. But the um, I can
0: send you it after. Yeah,
1: that's the thing. Is like, so you're you're talking about like the first principle um, that I, that I teach, and it's practice, rigorous authenticity. And and the thing is, is that a lot of people, especially with authenticity being a buzzword, a lot of people will like point to the moment that they were authentic, like when they kept it real in front of grandma. Um, <laughs> It's really hard to be rigorously authentic. And that means that no matter what the stakes are, whether they're low, they're high, it's being true to yourself no matter what. And that was something that was really, really the antithesis of how I was living when I was in active addiction. And it's something that, you know, and what I argue in my book is that the similarity between leaders and addicts is this addicts hide their true self behind a mask in attempt to pursue the next high. Leaders hide themselves their true selves behind a mask in order to pursue success. Mm. They have the same addiction um, in terms of the process they're both addicted to a mask and so the problem is, is that when we get clean when the addict gets clean, they have a recognized addiction with recognized solutions, And it is valued that they go and they work through them. And so when you go into a 12-step meeting, you declare I'm an addict, you get a sponsor and you work the steps, especially the fourth one for my 12-steppers out there, you get seen for who you are completely. And then you get honored for who you are and who you can become. But for all those leaders out there in the corner office or the entrepreneurs that are pretending that they're happy when they're really like secretly suffering or the CEOs that can never admit that they have a mistake, All those people walking around out there, there isn't, we haven't even acknowledged the problem. Like we want leaders to be authentic, but we haven't acknowledged the problem. Because when you tell someone to stop using their drug of choice, they never stop. The only time an addict ever stops is when you tell them what to start instead. And up until now, all we have is inspiration for Mm -hmm. how a leader can overcome their mask addiction. We don't have implementation the same way a drug addict has in 12-step programs or 28-day rehabs or whatever it is. And so we need to be able to equip, and that's like, obviously, I'm like going off on this, but like, it's really hard. And if we can get the leaders to achieve what I call mask recovery, then we can start to create our organizations and our workplaces as the arenas in which we train people to be their true selves in the world. And if we do that, we completely change the world.
0: I completely agree. And the thing in there that is a gem of human nature is you do not replace a habit by saying that you're no longer doing it. That doesn't work. You replace a habit by literally choosing a new habit instead that gets you what you thought you were seeking with the previous behavior. And I just want to re-articulate that. Like what I understand about psychology, that is exactly how it works. And it's beautiful that you have that. I'm curious about the beginning parts of your life and I have some questions that I want to ask to kind of give people a sense of where you began, why the mask was put on, and then we can get into the transformation, which is what people love. But in order to make that, you have to know what it was before. Um, One of my favorite questions is, what do you recall as your first memory? Oh, my
1: first memory I was just talking about this with someone the other day i I, I don't really have a great memory before I was 10. I do remember um. I, always, I guess I was destined to be an entrepreneur because I, I I would love for my first memory to be tragic. I think that would make like the transformation <laughs> better, but I'm not going to be inauthentic. Um, so I remember when I was like five or six, my parents um, had gotten me a bunch of like school supplies as I was preparing to enter kindergarten. And I remember like organizing them and recognizing, you know, in my whatever language was in my head at the time that I had these like valuable assets. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to rent these supplies to my sister, who was 17 months younger than me. And then the problem is, is that she decided to cut out the middleman and ask my parents for school supplies. And then I lost my entire marketplace because I (laughs) no longer (laughs) rent these supplies to her. And for some reason, that's like one of my early memories. I think maybe just because I talk about being an entrepreneur as much. But um, I also remember that when I was 10 years old, um, we moved from Northern California uh, to Southern California. And I remember what a shock to my system that move was because I was living in a part of Northern California called Los Altos Hills before it was Silicon Valley. And there was just like a gravel roads and like cow pastures. And everybody was just like down to earth and nice and all this kind of stuff. And then I moved to Los Angeles. And the first question on my first day at school is, what does my dad do and what does he drive? And am I invited to so-and-so's birthday party? And, oh, you're not? It's because I'm more popular than you. And me going, what the fuck just happened? Like, where am I? Yeah. And it was just this huge message of basically, your outsides are all that matter and you're not enough. And it was like a complete... I, I was a protected child, you know, when I was younger. And I had two parents. I was very fortunate. Middle, upper class. Like, I, great life. But I was really insulated from life on life's terms and when we moved to los angeles that began a a really really painful part of my life where i had to learn that 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 there were that people were judging other people and how you look matters and of course the cesspool of los angeles is just a great place for to learn that lesson and it was and i really struggled to be able to keep up with it and it was really hard for me
0: yeah, it feels like that experience at ten years old told you it's time to start creating a mask.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I remember saying something like I remember talking to my parents about this a while back, and they're like, "You were actually pretty popular in your school in Northern California." But the thing is, uh, I didn't know that. Mm. I was just being myself. Right. And then I go to Los Angeles, where popularity is based off of material things or status symbols. And suddenly I'm just like not able to compete and I'm shorter and, and, you know, I'm I'm young for my grade and just like all the things, uh, worked together. And, you know, and I I don't know if I've ever shared this story on a podcast, but I'm going to share it here. Um, just because I feel called to. So in eighth grade, um, I was in the locker room dressing for PE and some guy like spit, like just like across the room, not at me or whatever. But it landed on my hand, and it was a really disgusting spit. And so I went into the bathroom to wash it off with my shirt off. And um, the light was broken, so it was really hard to see. And this guy opens the door. Um, his name, I think, if I remember correctly, was Peter. Uh, and he was like my arch nemesis. Like, we always gave each other crap or whatever. And he saw that I didn't have a shirt on. And, and he went out, and he told everybody that I was jacking off in the, ba- in the bathroom. And there was another guy in that bathroom with me and he was like, what is he talking about? I'm like, I don't even, I pretended I knew what he meant. I didn't know what jacking off meant. Yeah. I had yet to masturbate. I didn't know what jacking off meant. Um, and so he told everybody else that I was jacking off in this bathroom. And then I get up to my next class and some other guy goes, so jacking off in the bathroom, right? And I'm like, and I just kind of smile because I'm pretending that I know what he means. Right. And I am falsely like, you know, saying yes to this thing that like, isn't even a crime or whatever. And for all of eighth grade, I became known as Jack off Brodyweight. And wow. I had to learn. And then, and then that gave me an intense sense of guilt when I started to masturbate. Because, yeah. because the one thing I had was I didn't even know how to do that. And they're saying that I did it. And then, of course, my parents were socially clueless. And my, when they found out that it was completely wrecking my world, they decided the way that they would solve it is they would come to the school and have that kid brought into the principal's office with them and me and somehow that's going to make it better. Oh, wow! Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it just made it worse. And luckily, after eighth grade, we all go into this big high school, and you know, and and I was able to kind of like overcome that. But I just remember thinking, I was I was just being myself. The kid that was in the bathroom with me never once stood up for me or said like he wasn't doing this thing. And it was just such a head trip because what I would, they were accusing me of doing wasn't actually necessarily a bad thing. Maybe inappropriate to be doing in a school bathroom, but like not inappropriate to be doing it all. And 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 I just got this message that we get to decide who you are. So if you don't control that narrative, you're fucked. And that, wow. and that, like for me, that was like a huge, huge culmination of like the three years of me moving to Los Angeles. And that was just like the worst year um, as a kid. And I'm very grateful, by the way, that as I characterize my worst year, that I had three meals a day and shelter and two parents and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, pain is relative. And as a kid, that was a really painful thing to go through.
0: 100%. And something, there's a lot that comes up there and I appreciate you sharing. One thing that comes up is everyone has a personal 10 on the scale of trauma. Like everyone has their 10 and, To compare it to others doesn't honor the fact that at some point in your life, you experience an absolute 10 that wrecks you. And it's something that must be contended with if you're going to ever come to full wholeness. And I think that that's an important thing for people to allow themselves to feel. Um, And, yeah, it's incredible the unconscious ego drives of humans when they're teenagers is so vicious because everyone is so deeply insecure because puberty is just coursing hormones through their body and everyone is so worried about what their status is how they appear to others are they accepted and how we act to each other in that time period of our lives like we might do something that we don't even understand, and then 20 years later found out that we marked somebody's life in a significant Mm -hmm. way that had pain and trauma infused into it. A question that comes up that I feel like is important to kind of anchor my understanding in your story is, what was the first book or movie that really captured your attention as a child like whatever age it is what comes up as the movie or the book that like the story that really caught you
1: the book that just came to mind was um two books called the adrian mole diaries and i don't even know if they're popular do you do you know that book i don't um I don't like, I might've been the only person on earth that read the book. I don't know, <laughs> but, but it, it, it really, it really spoke to me. I I remember it, be, it, if I recall correctly, it's written by a British female author, but it's about a um, teenage boy. And it, all it is, is a series of diary entries. Hmm. And, and because they were diary entries, the level of um, vulnerability and um, inner monologue or dialogue or whatever, like being able to see inside that teenager's mind, um, I'd never really had the opportunity to see myself in someone else. Like truly, Mm -hmm. like if I, you know, in in recovery, we say we're constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides. But in this example, I was able to compare my insides to someone else's insides and there were things that, you know, were from a thought process perspective that were embarrassing that I sh- that I identified with. And it was like, okay, that makes sense. And, and there was also a level of chaos that I identified with. And I was like, oh, I'm not alone. And I just remember I reread those books. I haven't thought about them in God forever, but I reread those books multiple times because when we moved to Los Angeles, I was short. Um, I, I was not socially equipped to deal with the rat race of this world. Um, I had this rumor go off about me. I wasn't performing well in school compared to my potential, said my parents, like just life fucking sucked. And I was able to read these books and, and not feel alone. Cause if I recall the the kid, the the character, um, is going through some pretty difficult stuff themselves. And it was just. I wasn't alone, and that was a really helpful piece of information.
0: What age did you find that book?
1: I, th- I think it was around when I was like 13, and like I can't remember exactly. And I know that I know that it carried me for a couple of years. So I probably found it around like 10, 11, or 12, and continued to read it, like reread it until like 14 or 15.
0: My favorite question to ask might not actually fit your answer, but we'll just see where it goes. Um, My favorite question to ask is, imagine that you were telling a bedtime story to your child. Your child is about 10 and they're curious and you retold this story to them. Um, How could you tell it to us as if we were your daughter and she asked for a bedtime story and this is what you chose to tell her?
1: You talking about um, saying what's in the book.
0: Yeah, and my question is not to literally remember it, but to like from your heart, kind of get into the flow of like you're going to tell a bedtime story. But this is the source material that's inspiring you.
1: Um, so you're right; it may not apply, but there's actually something that I think would that, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll I will answer the question, but I might I'm going to alter it a little bit. Beautiful. Right now, there is a book that I'm reading my daughter and it is called um, The Grumpy Monkey. And it's all about this monkey that's out in the jungle with all his friends, and um, his name is, it's very cute, Jim Pansy. And he wakes up one day, and he's grumpy, but he doesn't want to admit that he's grumpy. And so he, his friends try to tell him how to cheer up, and so he sees his friend who's the... Um, you know, a gorilla. And, and he says, Hey, just, you know, let's go for a walk. You'll be happy. And then he, and then he meets the snake and the snake says, Oh, let's just do this and you'll be happy. And the lemur says, let's just do this. And so everybody keeps challenging him for, you know, why are you grumpy? And he keeps saying, I'm not grumpy. And so he's resi- he's saying, I'm not grumpy. And they keep saying, well, you seem grumpy, but here's how we fix it. And little by little, they get him to artificially raise his eyebrows they get him to stop squinching. They get him to put on a fake smile and he gets to walk around and he's trying to placate everybody around him and he doesn't even know what state he's in. And then finally he gets fed up and he says, I'm out of here. Like something like that. And he says, screw all you guys. And, and he says, I'm not grumpy. And then he gets away from everybody and he realizes, Oh, I, I am grumpy. I just I was so worried about what they thought. I didn't even know what was going on for me, and for somehow for me, it wasn't okay to be me. And the way the book ends is his friend uh, Norman, if I remember correctly, who's a gorilla, um, was really happy, but he uh, he had a quote unquote dance with a porcupine, and so he's got quivers all over. Yeah, and and so Panzee says, "What's going on, Norman? He's like, oh, well, "I well, I'm I'm in some pain, or, or I'm feeling sad because I, I danced with a porcupine." And he said, but I'm sure I'll feel okay, but it's okay that I feel bad right now. And Jim Pansy says, you know what? I'm grumpy right now, but I'm sure I'll be okay too. And I get like, Chivers just Shiver's just thinking about that because I want my daughter to know that it's okay for her to be who she is. And the world is going to do everything that it can to change that. And 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 especially like we think about authenticity, in my opinion, like uh, you know, just be like I think about children's book. Oh, the story of someone who believed they could become president and they became president. You can be whatever you think that you can be. Like, what about the fucking thing that everybody can relate to, which is everybody's trying to tell you how to feel about something that's going on in your life? Like everybody can relate to that. Everybody's judging what you're posting on social media or whatever. Like, I want her to know that when the world tells her who she is that she should have the freedom and then her knowing to know who she is and, and to be able to push back on that. And especially if she's got an emotional state, I don't want other people telling her, I can't control it. But uh, So I, I just love the message in that book. I know that's kind of a detour, but hopefully no, that, it's in a perfect. sideways. It, okay, cool.
0: <laughs> it's perfect. Okay, so what I love about this question is it seems to capture the essence of the person on the podcast. And what I hear in that story is the first Part of that story is something is wrong. And yep. what culture will tell you to do is to pretend that nothing is wrong. And here are all of these potential strategies that you can do to pretend. And that feels like the source of addiction that yep. the trying to artificially raise the eyebrows to try to make someone artificially smile that is the driver that seeks people to addiction. And then the medicine is literally what you teach, which is to be authentic. And as soon as you start resisting what it is that you know you're feeling, you allow it the opportunity to release. And what I love about this question is the way the psyche seems to operate is we are attracted to stories that reflect our dharma or our calling Mm. or our source. And you shared what feels like the perfect story.
1: And I was, and the whole time I was worried it was not the right story, but you're right. Like it totally captures so much of what I'm about this day. And I remember, like, I even think about when I was in rehab, um, we were, we were pretty hardcore into the four agreements and, and, and some of the Toltec, uh, you know, uh, customs. And I remember we were doing one and I remember this guy said, And I know you probably know this, uh, and I might be butchering it, but he said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, and suffering is the degree to which you resist reality. (laughs) Yeah. And I just remember going, oh my God, that was my whole life. Yeah. Like, and it was so helpful to know that pain is inevitable, because I actually had been under the delusion that it was optional.
0: That's what our culture Um, teaches.
1: I know, but like I... I couldn't even put words to it. And so like there's, and then then I remember like coming out of like this thing and my therapist, his name was Hunter and he was like the nicest, like most gentle human in the world. And, And he's like, so Michael, what did you think? I was like, well, you know, one of the things I became aware of as I was thinking about is just how much I worry that people are judging me. And he like looks at me and he smiles and he leans in and he says, I'm judging you. That is not fucking helpful, dude. Like you, you're like Mister. He's like, but but I'm. Everybody's judging everyone all the time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. And so just this whole notion, like, I mean, so it it definitely was a mind f for a while, but like it was. So I still remember it. It was just so helpful. It was like, oh, okay, so. The the brain wants to do certain things, and I don't have to be, uh, you know, the 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 person that does whatever it says. But I'm so caught up in, in the in the ego projections of everybody else, I can't even tell what my inner knowing is saying because it's hard enough to fight through my ego, let alone everybody else's. And it was those are just helpful context. So I'm glad that the Grumpy Monkey. Uh, uh, I'm actually going to start like I'm going to put that book behind me when I do like video interviews instead of my <laughs> book. Because I'm like, that. this one captures the problem and then my book can help you with the solution.
0: There's something so beautiful about, there's a couple of things that come up here. It feels like if a parent truly accepts the role that is asked of them when they become a parent, to be a parent, that the way that they teach their children is literally them acting out, healing the child inside of them. Yep. And that you are giving your children the stories that you had to painfully seek for 40 years and that you can now give it to them as a gift at the beginning. And there's this beautiful feeling of like we, we are helping the collective move higher Each time that we show up to our children in the way that we wish that we had been shown up to. And it sounds like that's absolutely what's happening there. And that's beautiful. And the other thing is that stories are so healing. And when we have the intention to tell it to a child, there's like, there's this part of us that just knows how to strip out all the fat and just give like the essence in its simplest form. And it's why this is my favorite question to ask people is that everyone seems to have this ability. It's innate in us. We have evolved to sit around a fire and share stories and it comes out every single time.
1: Well, it definitely came out with the story of the grumpy monkey for (laughs) sure. But uh, yeah. And you know, one thing you said about uh, what we do with our children one thing that I really love about my experience, um, in the 12 step program is I've come to understand that in my humble opinion, sponsors are the best leaders in the world. You know, mm-hmm. like we have different forms of leaders. We have, we have parents, um, we have, uh, leaders of companies, executives, let's say, uh, we got military generals. Like we got, we got all, all kinds of, all kinds of leaders, um, uh, mentors, coaches, but the sponsor is the only person, um, that, I had that I had access to when I was like trying to form my concept of leadership that led others by leading themselves. And that was something that, so an example of that is, is that most, you know, even coaches or mentors, they feel this responsibility to demonstrate their expertise, but a sponsor actually uses the majority of their failures Mm. um, in their experience to motivate and to demonstrate to motivate the people that they are leading and to demonstrate how working a system for self-leadership can actually help you manage through that. And so like a sponsor doesn't tell a sponsee what to do. They don't. Uh, they only make suggestions. They don't ever like offer orders or anything like that. And they never try to pretend that they're higher up. Um, they use their, their vulnerabilities and their failures as a way to share experience simply so the sponsee can like stand on their shoulders and see further than they did and when I think about my parent, when I think about my parents and, and parents in general and me being a parent, one thing that's obvious to me is my um, my mom and my dad both had pretty challenging childhoods. And so one of the reasons I was so overprotected was they were severely overcorrecting for what they experienced and it created yeah. a different kind of damage. Yeah. And so the worst thing I could do is then like overcorrect and like be like, okay, this is how you're gonna live, you know, my daughter and my son, and and make it like the rules. Yet when I look at addicts that have children, most of their children become addicts, or a lot of them do. And the ones, the children of the addicts that get clean and stay clean or enter recovery are the ones that didn't get told what to do, that just saw their parent engaged in the process of recovery, came to a 12-step meeting and read their book on the ground while we were doing the meeting or whatever, saw the meeting with their sponsor, saw them doing like whatever it was, and, and so this process of like, can you, can, you, can you lead yourself in front of those that you lead? And if so, do you then inspire them to lead themselves? And hopefully I'm able to do that for my daughter and take that approach rather than like trying to ram everything that I've learned down her throat, which I think is definitely a temptation because I have control issues. Like I would want, left to my own devices, I would totally do that. I just know that it's not going to work.
0: The beautiful thing that I hear there is that if people knew, if they really felt it in their body that the best leaders are the ones who lead by sharing their failures and their mistakes as example, it would give everyone this sense of knowing that as they're going through what feels like a failure or a relapse or a mistake, that they are literally creating medicine that if they told to people in the future, would actually help heal people. And that if people knew that in the moment of their darkest personal experiences, that, oh, yeah, I'm weeping, I feel hopeless, but there's a part of me that knows that if I get through this, I now have a story as medicine that I will be able to share with people in the future where they won't have to go through this. And if people had that meaning when they were in the dark night of the soul, um, you know, Nietzsche has the quote, a man who has a why can bear any how. Like, that's what serves me when I go through dark experiences is that I know if I keep my eyes open and I'm willing to share this story, this has meaning too.
1: That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to tell my sponsees they're
0: creating medicine. I like, I really like that. Amen. Um, so, what was the like can you kind of tell us the story of you get into high school and bring us to the moment of just utter just destruction
1: so when i was in college like as i said before you know i I just i felt like i didn't have um the instructions to deal with life i distinctly remember a night where i was hanging out with a bunch of my friends and my friend erica said something and it was it, it was nothing it didn't matter i don't even remember if it was i don't think it was mean I just remember I had this huge emotional reaction. I felt tremendously wronged um, and rejected. And I stormed out and I went back to the dorm and there was a fridge full of beer. And it was the first time that I drank alone. You know, um, total disclaimer, by the way, my, my father is um, an alcoholic. And when I was uh, six months old, he came home from the bar and he picked me up and he dropped me. And he said to himself, I can be an alcoholic or I can be a father, but I can't be both. And that was the day he stopped drinking, but he never saw recovery. He's one of those rare people that was able to be a, essentially a dry drunk and wow. white knuckle it. And so my parents sat me down and said, no matter what you do, don't ever drink. And if, so, if you suspect that your kid is an addict, don't tell them not to do it. <laughs> right. They'll go do it. Yep. And so... I'm sitting there with that beer and, and, and I watched this Lifetime movie about this alcoholic and it was supposed to be like a story of caution. Like, hey, you don't ever want to be this. But when I watched that movie, I was like, everything about life on life's terms baffles me. But apparently, I was built to be an alcoholic and it feels more palatable and I can do that. I can do that really well. So I'm going to do that. And so, for the next two years, um, between my freshman year and my junior year, I amassed less than a freshman year's worth of credits, um, and I ended up, you know, getting kicked out, uh, getting straight Fs uh, because I showed up to tests high, and I actually thought that if I filled C straight down the Scantron, somehow I would magically pass. <laughs> and that does not actually work, and and I knew that, and I did it anyway. And so then, uh, you know, I started, uh, I got a, a job at a retail store selling CDs at a place called The Warehouse out in Sacramento, California. While all my friends graduated, I was living with them and I would just go to, the, to that job, um, steal from that job, drive drunk and high to that job, at that job, home from that job. Um, and then I tried what what is addicts call a geographical cure. And I tried to move back down to LA where I was, you know, where my parents were. And it culminated in me just getting way more significant levels of alcohol and drugs being put into my system, taking more and more risks to get them to pay for them, go, you know, getting a tremendous amount of financial debt and, and, and physical challenges. My doctor told me the only thing higher than me was my liver enzymes. <laughs> and and wow. so uh, it culminates in this moment where I'm living on my buddy's couch in Venice Beach, California. And I was going to stay for like a weekend and it's three months later and he loves me enough that he's not going to kick me out, but I am wearing out my welcome because every time he goes to work, I steal his money, I steal his food, I steal his liquor, I steal his drugs. And then I invite strangers over to his house to wreck his house and it's not working. And every once in a while, my dad offers to take me to breakfast. Um, And I know that the reason that he's doing is just because he wants to see that his son is still alive. Um, and every time I would go, he would offer to send me to rehab. And finally, one day I come back and I tell Aaron whose house I was uh, staying at. I say, Aaron, you know, my dad keeps offering to send me a rehab and, and Aaron was like totally stoked about me going to rehab. And it wasn't about me going to rehab. He just wanted me out of his fucking house. Um, and so he convinces me and I convince me that I quote unquote need a vacation I don't know what drug addict needs a vacation. Their whole <laughs> life can be, even though it's really hard. It's like a vacation, and uh, and so um, I check into rehab. I wake up at the Betty Ford Center in Ranch Mirage, California, September first, two thousand two. Um, I did it because I ran out of options. Um, I was throwing up blood, as I mentioned before. I didn't have any money. I was in a tremendous amount of debt. Um, the like I I couldn't even afford a belt. Like the I had a rope that I used to uh, to keep my pants up, and I only one only one you know change of clothes. And so I what went age there were you at when you checked in? 23. What age? Okay. I was 23 years old and and I just showed up because I ran out of options. It was that or actually live on the street. And I didn't want to live on the street. So I thought I'd find 28 days worth of time to figure out what I was going to do next. But um, something really magical and crazy happens when you hear your story come out of someone else's mouth. Wow. Yeah. And being surrounded by a bunch of addicts in recovery or or in rehab. My story kept getting reflected back to me over and over and over again. For the first time, I could see myself clearly. I was a man who or a boy or whatever that had given up on life. And I was just trying to kill myself the slow way. And being able to see myself in everybody's story and then being offered an actual step by step solution instead of just don't get high, that changed everything for me. What happened next? What happened next? So I get out of rehab, um, and uh, I go to another rehab um, because my, the therapist at my at Betty Ford said, "Mike, you never want to hear this. By the way, you're sicker than the other addicts. You never want to hear that. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're, like, you're like you're in this facility with like 28 people that are the sickest of the sick, and they're like, you actually you're the one that needs the most work. But they're like, you overintellectualize things too much." And so they gave me two brochures of two places to do more work. Um, one was in Monterey, California, which is my favorite place. I was like, dope, I'm going there. That's where I was um, born. And the other, that's where you're born? Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So brothers. Um, and so he so Carmel is specifically my favorite place. <laughs> and um, and the other brochure was for a treatment center out in Nunnally, Tennessee. And on the brochure were cowboys and horses. And I was like, Fuck that. I'm never going yep. leaving California. I was like, voted least likely to leave California. <laughs> and, um, and someone said, Your best thinking got you here. Wow. And that was the first time um, I have a higher power. Don't ask me to describe what it is. I don't know, but I believe in it 100%. Um, and that was the first time I chose my higher power's will over mine. And I chose a place out in only Tennessee. Wow. And which was about an hour and 15 minutes outside of Nashville and I I did I did more treatment there and then I went to a halfway house and then I, I in the halfway house I started to make my way in Nashville and
0: been here ever since. Can you zoom in on that moment that you chose for the first time to go against your ego and to follow your higher power? what like why? What happened so? Oh, man. So um,
1: one of the the hardest things as an addict is knowing what you're going to do and how bad it is and wanting so badly to not do it and doing it anyway. Yeah. And I remember, like, there's this one moment that symbolizes a thousand where I was like, I had had a really bad night the night before. I don't even remember the details. But like, I was really messed up. And I was like, I am not getting drunk or high tonight. I'm not. I didn't have anything with me. And I just kept picturing, it was like I could tell the future. I kept seeing myself by 5 p.m. driving to a liquor store, putting stuff into a cart, using a credit card that I stole from my parents, and coming home and getting obliterated, throwing up, and calling people and saying things that I'll regret. And I knew that that's what was going to happen. And I wanted so badly for it not to. And the whole time, it was like this surreal thing of, I don't want this to happen. I won't let this happen. And knowing that it will happen anyway. And sure enough, prior to 5 p.m., I found myself in that liquor store. Sure enough, I found myself at home being obliterated, doing things I regret. And so when I was in rehab and they gave me those two brochures, I just had this reflex of, well, I'm totally gonna go to the place in Monterey. And I remember uh, walking back to my room and I remember feeling a similar level of surreal knowing that I was picking something out that that was not gonna be good for me out of uh, a desire for instant gratification Monterey is far more familiar and comfortable and it's what I want. So, okay. And I just remember thinking about all the times that I picked something for short-term gratification that had so many long-term consequences. And I just remember thinking like, if I can't make this decision differently here right now, I'm like in my room, I'm alone. I've got the two brochures on my bed and I'm looking at them and my gut my inner knowing, because I don't have drugs in my system for the first time, right? Like I haven't had them in my system for like three weeks. Everything in my gut is saying, don't go to Monterey. And everything in my head is saying, go to Monterey. That's what I want to do. And I'm like, if I can't make this decision differently in here, I won't make any decision differently out there. And just out of pure surrender, I picked the other one just because I was too scared of actually picking, making the same decision I'd made a
0: thousand times. The thing that stands out to me is out of pure surrender. And that really feels like, man, it feels like what the psyche will do to the ego to get the ego to finally bow to the higher knowing inside is it has to bring you to your motherfucking knees. Mm-hmm. And only when you get to your knees and you surrender can you begin the process of actually becoming what you've known since you were a child you've been asked to be so true
1: and i also think like you you're talking a lot about like inner knowing and and i think we both know a lot of that has to do with like how well you're tapped into your body and yeah when you're constantly taking drugs and alcohol it's really hard to be be able to feel that stuff so i bet my whole time, I never really thought about this until now, but my whole time in active addiction, I had these really strong levels of intuition that could have happened in my in my body, but I just I was disconnected from it. There's no way I was able to receive the signal, yeah, but that changed dude, that changed everything, man, because like you know that moment I ended up in uh learning that I could make a decision like that uh and it wouldn't kill me. And, and I started to associate long-term gratification with the things that I, that actually truly made me content in life. And that really set me up to make a lot of different decisions.
0: I love this so much. Can you tell us how your life unfolded once you began that surrendering to the inner knowing?
1: Yeah. So, um, the first thing is when I uh, when I got out of the treatment center in Nottingly, Tennessee, I moved to a halfway house in Nashville. And when I got there, they said I had five business days to get a job or they would kick me out. And I knew that I was going to have trouble getting a job. I didn't have a college degree. I had this huge gap on my resume and I went and applied at a bunch of places. And this uh, CD store... Um, called Sam Goody, and so for anyone that's older than me, a CD store is a record store. And for anyone my age, it's a CD store. You know what that is. And anyone younger, you don't know what the fuck it is. So just consider it being Spotify in a brick and mortar environment. <laughs> And uh, and they were the one place I got a job interview in those five days, and I remember calling my sponsor and saying, "What do I tell him about this like gap in my resume? I can't tell him that I was using drugs every day and that I just got out of rehab and I'm in a halfway house. And if I don't get this job, I'm going to be out on the street and probably relapse and die." And he said, and so if I were to take a step back real quick, the three principles that I teach that I learned in recovery are practice rigorous authenticity. That's the one that we talked about before, but you can't do that unless you learn how to surrender the outcome and then do uncomfortable work. And those are the three principles. And so he said, he said, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work anyway. And I was like, okay. And I go into that job interview and when he asked me about my work history, I tell him the truth and I get the job. And I'm like, holy shit. I showed my true self. Like Most people who aren't addicts can, re- can still relate to not wanting to share the worst thing about them in a job interview, especially if that job interview is the difference between them having shelter or not. And I did it probably out of more fear that I would die using than, than knowing that it would be positive. And I survived it. And so then that gave me this curiosity of like, I wonder where else I can challenge the notion that being my true self in a professional environment it, it is, is something that's like, I can't do. And so like a year after that moment, I got a job at, at this fortune 50 company at the time Dell. And um, I stuck out there like a sore thumb. I worked there for eight years and a lot of people did not like me. And it's because um, in my book, I talk about the four masks that everybody wears in leadership that, and and they are the masks of saying yes, when you could say no hiding weaknesses avoiding difficult conversations, and holding back your unique perspective. And corporate environments drive all of those. And yet I was saying no to customers, to coworkers. I was aggressively sharing my weaknesses. I was willing to have a difficult conversation because, dude, I was about to die. So like, this isn't that scary. And when it came to my unique perspective, I didn't care if the customer was in the room or the boss's boss was in the room. I was scared, but I walked through that fear anyway. I learned how to surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. And that was where I learned that these principles and doing, like, doing what drug addicts do to recover at work, it made me an outsider. It also got me promoted eight times in eight years and made my mentors my employees. And that's where I learned that, holy crap, they told me to practice these principles in all my affairs. But most of my fellow recovering people think it stops in corporate America. They think it stops in business. And I'm here to tell you it fucking doesn't. It's just no one's doing it. But if you use these principles and you're able to say no, share your weakness, have to conversations, conversation, share your unique perspective, no matter what, it's a competitive advantage. And that's what really happened to me. And so I flourished and that set me up for my career as an entrepreneur, speaker, coach, all that kind of stuff and where I am now.
0: What I love so much, and I'm getting waves and waves of goosebumps, is that I, I know the point in my life where um, I accidentally ate way too much of an edible. I was 26. I ended up taking like 18 times the recommended dose. Had the worst experience of my life, the maximum amount of suffering. Um, I don't need to get into the details, but because it felt like I faced the worst possible what-ifs of what could be my life that night, I had this instinctual commitment, which I didn't articulate, but now hearing these three principles completely encapsulates what I did, is I began to do the things that I was afraid to do, if I was called by my higher knowing to do it, and to speak my truth while doing it. And my life in the last three years has absolutely exploded and I lived my life intellectualizing, not doing things that I was afraid to do. And the moment that I began to be authentic, to release what happens from me telling the truth, and then to purposefully do the things that I'm afraid to do if I'm called to do them, that that really feels like the cheat code to how to manifest the life that you want. And I love so deeply that you can articulate it so clearly and that you're shouting it from the mountain because it feels like it is what people need to hear. And I'm deeply grateful.
1: Thanks, man. Um, I got a huge smile when you said it gave you goosebumps and you sharing that. Um, One thing I want to just like call out for anyone that's listening right now is, not everybody is going to be built like Eric um, who's who's able to do that stuff. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that I'm obsessed with is uh, – so, Eric, I'm sure – I'm making an assumption here. You're, you know who Brene Brown is and you like her? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Pretty safe assumption. If you didn't <laughs> know, that would be the biggest duh ever. So – um, when I was running my startup, I had like 50 employees. We're this multi-million dollar startup. I'm the CEO, and I'm handing all my employees the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown. And I'm saying, this is actually our secret, this is going to be the secret sauce for us. And then they all have trouble executing what's in her book. And and as much as I love Brene and she's an idol of mine, um, she's an academic that wrote a book that was largely to me um explaining research and offering concepts and ideas but the thing that was missing was in the 12 step program i don't care what your education or socioeconomics are i don't care what what language you're in what country you're in you can apply the step by step system in anybody anybody can achieve recovery. They can stop slamming dope in their veins every day for three years. And all of a sudden that wasn't my thing, but they can, or for me drinking and using whatever drugs are around and they can become a productive member of society. So my question was, how do we take this inspiration and turn it into foolproof into implementation? And so these three principles that, um, that, that I, j- I shared, like we've created a, Step by step methodology for how anyone can implement them uh, in 28 day cycles by just doing this like one thing that's different one minute a day, and it's this. It's very similar to the 12 steps for anyone that's struggling with mass, but it's so it's designed with the empathy of knowing that some people um, aren't as capable of being inspired and driving their own implementation. Some people need like authenticity for dummies, and they need the step by step system for how to do it. And because I want, I want this to be accessible to all. I want everybody to be able to reproduce this outcome, not just be an exceptional human being. And I'm not trying to imply that you haven't used a methodology. I'm sure that you have. But like I'm talking to someone who is highly self-aware, done a tremendous amount of self-work, knows more shit than most people will ever know in their life. And I bet someone's going, man, I don't know if I can do that. Like, dude, When I got into the 12-step program and I heard an old-timer with 30 years uh, clean share, I said, I will never get there. I will never get there. And now I'm closer to that than I was my first day using. And it's just because every day I implemented a step-by-step system that was able to give me what that old-timer had.
0: What I love so much about this is um, academics are great at creating maps, but maps are not the forest. And the people that have actually walked through the forest, they make the best maps. And it sounds like, and what I hear very clearly is that you walk walked through the motherfucking forest for mm-hmm. people who are listening, who are completely on board. Uh, where would you point them to begin? Is it your book? Is it a website? Is it, where would you point them?
1: So I think the, the, the thing that every addict needs to understand to have the, to be able to create change is they first have to understand that they have a problem. Um, so we have created what we call a mask assessment, which in five minutes will tell you which mask is holding you back. Like, so are, is your problem that you say yes when you could say no? Is it hiding a weakness? Is it avoiding a difficult conversation on a regular basis? Is it holding back your unique perspective? It tells you which mask is holding you back It tells you what your authenticity percentage is, and it gives you a personalized report that tells you um, some of the characteristics of your level of authenticity and ways to increase your authenticity and to be able to essentially what we say is reclaim 500 hours a year simply by being more authentic. And so if you want to be able to take that assessment to understand where you have a problem, you can go to whatsmymask.com, just w h a t s m y m y m a s k what's my mask.com and you can take this assessment for free um it does obviously then create an account for you for our mask free program which is a uh, basically what we've created to help people overcome mask addiction and that's the first way also if you just want to learn more about me or a great starting place if once you take that assessment can be get my book um just google i'm my first 25 years having a hyphenated last name kicked my ass the last 15 <laughs> years. It's made me unique on Google, which I love. So you can just Google Michael Brody-Wait, Brodywaite, B-R-O-D-Y hyphen W-A-I-T-E. I'm putting out mass free content on social. My website's michaelbrodywaite.com. Or you can just find my book, um, Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts on Amazon or something like that. But um, just Google my name and you can find me. And I think, I think, Taking the assessment will give you the motivation to do something and then you can either just learn from my content or if you really want to learn how to apply this step-by-step three principle system into your life to reclaim 500 hours, then I would say start with the book, Great Leaders Look Like Drug
0: Acts. And what I love and we talked about this before is if we are honest, all of us have addictions. It's Totally. It's, it's a part of being alive in this culture and... Step one is to admit that you are addicted to something. Um, My favorite, or the question that I love to end this on is kind of a multi-part question, but it's imagine that you are at the end of your life, that you've lived a full life and you've achieved what you have sought to achieve and you've lived how you have sought to live. You know that you're going to die peacefully in your sleep at the end of the day. How would you spend that last day and who would you spend it with and then i have a couple more questions at the end after you answer
1: uh so to me the the two most important things in my life are my recovery slash higher power and my uh family that i've created and so i would spend that with my wife and children and uh, my sponsor and sponsors, and and my spiritual brothers, have been part of reco- uh, my recovery journey. And 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 with those two groups of people in the room, I know my higher power would be there too.
0: And if you could leave a note to your grandchildren before mm-hmm. you go to bed, what would you say?
1: Oh man, like I tell my dad all the time that I wish he wrote a book. Because I want my grand, I want my children and their children to understand who he is and who he was, and so I feel like um, I wrote. I wrote one of the reasons I wrote the book was so that I could do just that. But you want me to do it in just a small note, not in 200 pages, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which I have a lot more words than 200 pages. Um, I, I would just say. <sighs> I'm gonna. I I have the answer that I think is branded and sounds good and aligns with my platform, and then I have the real answer. And I know what um, you're gonna
0: say, so just say the second one.
1: Acceptance is the is the answer to all your problems today.
0: I love that, brother. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm so. I just feel how alive I feel and how important this message is. And then I know it's going to serve a lot of people and I appreciate how you've shown up to life, man. Dude,
1: I appreciate you, man. You've created a huge, you uh, an awesome platform that's helping people. But like compared to a lot of the podcasts that I've done, you are so thoughtful, empathetic and coming from a place of service when you're asking the questions and engaging in this conversation. And it feels like a lot more than a podcast. Um, it feels like, I don't know, a, a universal like interaction that I don't, I don't even have the words, honestly, it's just, it was, it was a great experience and I'm grateful for you. And I'm grateful for the platform that you're building and for the heart that's building that platform and for an opportunity to just
0: spend one moment on it. Your compliment is received oh (laughs) jade and mercedes thank you for making this happen brother um i know that we will be interacting more thank you
1: yep you too